when I was first uh, going into campus ministry and uh, somewhere in the 80s, um, you know, the urgency to reach people for Christ seemed so deep. And it's like, I just got to do this. But I had this crazy, crazy desire that I felt kind of almost odd about, but I just really wanted to learn Greek. And so I spent four years studying Greek, my early years of campus ministry, and then the next two years learning Hebrew. And then I took a year off, and then I started, you know, cramming a four-year seminary degree into 12 years. So anyway, uh, so what this has to do with Reformation Day is uh, I um, was recently, well, I've been teaching Hebrew now, uh, along with other things at North Central, and um, they have a wonderful uh, preface in the text that I use from uh, Pastor John Piper here in uh, local in the Twin Cities, and he brings out some of my favorite quotes going back to Martin Luther. So Martin Luther was a monk, and he uh, was wrestling. And he, you know, if you are a um, if you're a monk, and he was uh, if you're a monk in that system, you had a, a spiritual kind of mentor. We'd call it a spiritual director. They call it. And the spiritual director would say, I'm just struggling with guilt. And I mean, he, here he was, he was teaching classes on the Bible. I'm struggling with guilt. Oh, my gosh, you know. And uh, Stelpitz kept saying, teach more. You know, teach Roman. You know, he just kept driving him back to the scriptures. And he eventually, so Luther was uh, an Augustinian monk, so he was conversant in Greek and Hebrew. And eventually, it was the study of the scriptures and he was looking at it, and he realized, he had a little bit of blindness because of what he'd been taught, but he realized justification is by faith. And it just, it just exploded in his soul, and it changed his life. But then as he went on to lead the Reformation, he said some things uh, to really pastors uh, in those days. Or, um, <clears throat> and he said, we must strongly contend for the biblical languages. We must contend for Greek, for in it is encased the gospel. He said, Greek and Hebrew are the sheath that holds the sword of the spirit. And he, he begged, he said, when we lose, uh, he had a lot of colorful things. He said, when, when the, when the uh, see what happened was the Reformation was part of a larger cultural renewal. It was a roots movement. So the Renaissance started it, right? The Renaissance was a roots movement. They said, let's go back to the roots of the classics. And they started, you know, reading Aristotle and Plato. They started reading all these Greek scholars. Well, the Christians kind of caught on this. They started reading the Bible. And they realized that there had been some cultural things that had kind of come over, glassed over the gospel. So it was the contact with the actual scriptures, no presuppositions, right? Going back to the scriptures that caused the Reformation, and not just you know, Luther, Calvin, many others, right? That as they went to the gospel. And, and uh, so what uh, Piper says in this introduction to his Hebrew textbook is that if a, you know, he appreciates all the scholars that do all this stuff. He said, well, what's happened in the modern church, and I agree with him, is that uh, we've, we've turned Bible study into a professional's thing so that the, you know, the pastor doesn't even know Greek and Hebrew, uh, so he's leaning on other people to tell him what the Bible means. And he says, if you, over a long haul, over 20, 30 years, if you do that, you either become a fundamentalist because you've just got some real strong answers, or you go the diff other direction and follow the culture. And he said, but if you stay in the original language and you're, you're contending for the truth all the time, you will stay fresh and the, and the, and the, the 
people, the sheep, the, the, the congregation will hear the word of God. And I just, when I read that, I just thought, wow, you know, this is what's happened to me. I'm so grateful. I felt guilty, like I'm spending all these hours studying and other people are doing other kinds of ministry. And everybody's just like, I've just got to do this. And now it's become not just a passion for myself, but I, I want to, you know, here, North Center, wherever it is, if we will learn the word of God. Now, hey, if you read the Bible in English, don't feel bad, but as one stodgy German theologian said, it's a little bit like kissing through cellophane. It's still a kiss, but it lacks that certain, you know, ooh-la-la, right? It's not quite the same, right? Okay, and, but when you are, and, and there's, a, there's a couple guys in the church here that because Amy offers a class in Greek, Amy, stand up, wave your hand, okay? Amy, if you will help her with, with, with Creeping Charlie in her yard, she will teach you Greek, right? Who wants to take Greek from Amy? Okay. Sign up, sign up, talk to her, she'll forget, you know, maybe talk to her, yeah, okay, this is, okay, so, so Dan and James are already, they, they've worked through this thing, right, and they're starting to give us quotes that are inspiring in some of our group emails and texts, they're like, hey, here's some real issues, James had one the other day that talks that could address certain theological issues that are at risk right now, right, so that's all of us, right, so, you know, I didn't learn Greek and Hebrew and planning to become a pastor, I just wanted to know the word of God, right, and so I just encourage you, wherever you're at, to know the Word of God. And so I am so grateful for the resources that have allowed me to, you know, kind of catch up, because I'm, you know, uh, kind of had to catch up with Hebrew. Anyway, that's another story. We'll go into that. We're preaching from the New Testament today, so we will talk about the New Testament. Here we go. Uh, so anyway, I'm just so grateful for the scholars and reformers and pastors that have come before and encouraging us to run the race that we could know the word of God. You know, one of the, one of the fruit, I, <laughs> one more story. So I was, uh, first year I was married to Michelle, we had to raise money, so we were running around all the state of Minnesota preaching and, you know, talking to people about campus ministry. And so I was uh, preaching a, a, a series out of Titus 2, um, 11 to 14, so I took one of those sermons down in Blue Earth, and one of my friends down there, uh, A.G. Miller, after the sermon, he said, well, so where'd you get that sermon? And I was like, the Bible? You know, <laughs> I didn't quite know what he meant. I got caught, I'm like, oh my gosh. There's pastors that are dependent on other sources, you know? It's like, wow, and it didn't even enter my mind. And that's because my campus pastor, Jim Bradford, who was an aeronautical engineer, taught us from the word of God. And so that's where our foundation is. All right, so here we go. Hebrews, chapter eight. There was some people, what are the advantages of being a Christian in this new covenant? How does it help? So as you know, there were some Jewish Christians asking that very question in the first century. It's part of why this book was written. They're wondering... What are the advantages of being a Christian? Is it worth the price? How does this new covenant help? What are the benefits, right? So just to bring you up to speed, in case you haven't been here, what we know so far, Jesus, the Son of God, is greater than angels, the author of Hebrews says. Secondly, Jesus restores our calling to rule the world, but he restores that calling through his suffering on the cross. Jesus is greater than Moses, because Moses was faithful to communicate truth and the future hope in the Pentateuch, but Jesus was faithful over the people themselves, the house of God itself, us, right? 
He's greater than Joshua because he gives us permanent rest and he's our, high, he's our high priest. But in the order of Melchizedek, because the law, the Torah, as important as it is, cannot actually perfect anyone. And so we learned last week, or two weeks ago, that he, Jesus has a perpetual preach, priesthood. Sorry, slow down. <laughs> And he saves us completely through his intercession and his sacrifice of himself, right? So we're saved through Jesus, our priest, and sacrifice. And then he says, finally, now he's getting to his culminating point. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 8. For when he found fault with them, he said, Behold, a day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and even a new covenant with the house of Judah. Not in accord with the covenant which I made with their fathers in a day when I took them by my hand to lead them from the land of Egypt, because, because they did not remain in my covenant, I paid no attention to them, says the Lord. That is, this is the new covenant which I will covenant with the house of Israel, with that house, says the Lord, putting my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts and I will be God for them, and they will be a people for me. And they will not teach each his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest of them, because I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins I will no longer remember. Let's pray. So, Lord, we ask as we open up your word this morning that you would draw us near to you, that we would actually grasp this new covenant and that we would see people this morning set free in their souls through the power of the new covenant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a new covenant, so this morning we're going to look at what are the benefits of this new covenant. So the first benefit of the new covenant is a new nature. Now, if we were to summarize Hebrews 8, 1 to 7, I'll do it really briefly. Verses 1 to 3, we've got a superior heavenly priest in this true, this, this heavenly tabernacle, which is apparently the real one, and the one on earth is the copy of that. And the old covenant Levitical ministry was a shadow of this true heavenly ministry that Jesus has. So Christ mediates a better covenant founded on a greater promise, verses 7 and 8. In other words, and we read the last part of verse 8, the promise of a new covenant tells us there's a lack in the old covenant. It wasn't complete, right? The author of Hebrews makes that point a couple of times. And if you want to read this later, you can actually look at Deuteronomy 30 and the way that the Pentateuch is written in its final form, it's really an eschatological text. It's, it's, Moses is telling them, wait, I'm going to do a new thing. God's going to do a new thing, not him, but God's going to do a new thing. Wait for it. Be watching for it. So those that understood the Pentateuch would be waiting for this new covenant, right? Well, all right. So what is the greater promise that Moses announces? Look again at verse 10. I will put my laws in their minds and write them 
on their hearts. And so if we were to look at this, it actually kind of rhymes for the Hebrew students. In Hebrew, it's a natati et torati. Natati et torati. Okay, so is I will give, I will put my Torah. So uh, the uh, Greek translation, they use the word law, but if you understand Torah, it's bigger than law. It's instruction, right? This is how we're to live. And he says, he told them before, right? Moses is the minister of the words of God. He says, now I'm going to take that instruction. I'm going to put it in the midst of you, in your heart, and I'm going to write that instruction in your minds and hearts, right? Your mind, actually, I think in Greek, the first one is the mind and then the heart, right? So he says, I'm going to, verse 10, I'm going to put my laws, my, my Torah in their minds and write them on their heart. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, 33, the only old covenant passage that actually uses the phrase new covenant. But uh, look at Ezekiel. I just realized I forgot an Old Testament. Does somebody have a Bible I can borrow? I seriously, I forgot to bring the whole Bible and all I've got is, I need a, I need a yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I suddenly realized I'm referring to Ezekiel. I could quote it, but I might not get it just right. So uh, Jeremiah, a little bit older, he preaches uh, right before the exile and during the exile. But there's a younger guy that was actually uh, deported in the second de- deportation during the exile. And he, so he is in uh, Babylon, right? And he is also prophesying at the same time his name is Ezekiel, and his, uh, his messages overlap with Jeremiah. So this similar idea to this new covenant, look at Ezekiel 36, and we'll just look at two verses. Uh, there's a bunch there that you could read in context, but look at verse 26 and 27. 25 talks about sprinkling, but 26 and 27 to understand how the Old and New Covenant fit together, you must know these two verses, all right? You, you must really grasp these, along with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It says here, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stone, stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. NLT. NLT, okay, very good, Yeah. And I will put my spirit in you, listen, I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Okay? So he's saying what? I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, and he says, you must be born again, and, and uh, what's his name? Nicodemus. Uh, what do you mean, you know? And, and be very, read a literal translation here. He says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? Apparently some kind of head rabbi. And you don't understand these things? See, Jesus didn't expect Peter, a fisherman, to know this, but the teacher of Israel should know Ezekiel 36, among other scriptures, and be expecting a new covenant that brings a change of heart that removes the stony heart, puts in a heart of flesh. And the second thing that many Christians don't know, how do you obey? Well, I just really try hard. Well, good luck. (laughs) He says, I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to keep my decrees and keep my laws. So Hebrews is coming to this, right? Quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, 
but referring as well to Ezekiel, what is happening. He is, gives, a, you know, you, when you become a Christian, you don't just adopt a new set of morals or, or, or have a new view of God and metaphysics, right? Something actually happens. You have a change of nature. This change of nature is what makes the spiritual life possible, right? You can't do it without that. So I didn't know that Kevin was going to share what he shared, but in the spirit of what Kevin has shared, I will share a story from high school, right? So, okay. Uh, actually, right after high school in, in the Air Force. So I'm in the Air Force, and um, I had justified drug use by saying, well, there's nothing about marijuana in the Bible. I knew enough about the Bible to say that, right? <laughs> I know, you know, but how do you know these things, right? Okay, so I am, you know, kind of justifying, and, uh, but I, I really was starting to come under conviction, and I said, Mom, I want to go to the Baptist church. Why do you want to do that, you know? Well, because it's something like you got to accept Jesus, but I don't know how to do it. She says, oh, you know, I'm over. so we would get, I wouldn't do anything until I went to the Air Force. Okay, so. Here I am in the Air Force, and you know, I'm thinking, okay, I had thrown away a whole bag of weed. I thought, Air Force, it'll be clean. I won't be tempted anymore. Wrong. This was a medical dorm in the Air Force. There was more weed there than in West St. Paul. Okay, anyway, so, uh, so I am not doing very well in that regard. So I'm starting to go to church and, you know, getting high in Venable Noble's uh, dorm room. All right, so there were a lot of things there that we don't want to mention. But anyway, lots of opportunity for temptation. So, uh, uh, you know... I'm like, well, there's nothing about in the Bible, right? you know, my little line. And somewhere in early in going, starting to go to church around November, I'll just tell you that I was in his room and the conviction of the Holy Spirit came down. Have you ever had this happen? Like, no more arguments. Okay. See you guys, I gotta go. Go to my dorm room and I thought, boy, you know, I can't even tell someone I'm a Christian for a while, right? The conviction of the Holy Spirit is written, the law written on the heart. Later, I, you know, was able to discover theological understanding for why that was correct, right? By the way, how do you know, do that? Well, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine before the Spirit. If you're wondering about something that isn't in the Bible, a helpful thing to do is just have an imaginary conversation with somebody in the Bible. So, for example... You say to Paul, well, Paul, when you said, do not be drunk with wine, did you mean, like, don't get high in weed? Well, he first of all is like, well, what's weed? Well, you know, hemp. He's hemp. <laughs> That's ropes for ships. What are you doing smoking that? You know what? Okay. So, all right. But if I, if I do that and I kind of get kind of, woo, you know, and he said, oh, well, okay. What he would say is, this is about type, uh, typology of meaning for uh, more the theological students. He would say, I wasn't consciously thinking of weed, However, you have correctly discerned that it's within the pattern of meaning that I intended, right? So that it was in my unconscious meaning, right? I didn't, wasn't thinking specifically of weed or, you know, coke or ecstasy or whatever, right? But yeah, no, it's, you, you got me right. It's within the pattern of meaning. Don't use things for transcendent experiences because you can get that directly from the Holy Spirit, right? So that's, that's how you do, you know, in... in because our times are different than Paul's or, or Moses, right? So we have to do a little thinking like that. But that's the sort of thing you do theologically. I didn't know at the time. All I knew was the conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? Ooh, boom, okay, don't do this, right? That was because the Holy Spirit was causing me, even when I didn't want to, <laughs> to keep his decrees and laws. There's other stories like that that I can tell you later that if you're curious about, you know, sexuality and how God intercepted me there. Anyway, uh, very interesting how God works with uh, a new believer or anybody, right? A new nature 
and the Holy Spirit powers our obedience. However, I could have gotten other convictions about substances, couldn't I have, depending on who I'm listening to. So we listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but we do our theology as a community in case I get a wrong idea about those things. I need fellowship to clarify what I think I'm hearing from God. So when we, I'm just as an aside, but it's an important aside. When someone comes to the mic, you know, we will usually make a comment. Everything that was said today was so biblical, I didn't feel the need to say, hey, this is biblical, right? But, but nonetheless, when someone shares something prophetically, you judge it. Well, you know what? When you sense something from the Lord in your own spirit, you should do the same thing. Just because you're alone when it happens doesn't mean you should just assume it's right, right? And so even as we are sensing things from the Holy Spirit, we learn to check our theology, check our understanding, uh, you know, so that we make sure that what we think is the Holy Spirit is, is really is, right? So why does all this matter? Again, faith is not simply adopting a new set of morals. God is going to change us. You cannot do it, but the Holy Spirit can do it through you. There's areas where you come to the end of your strength. You know what I'm talking about? And it's so hard to actually change. But you say, Lord, I can't do this, but would you live through me? He says, Ezekiel 36, uh, uh, 27, his spirit will cause you to obey his laws. Right? The power of the Holy Spirit is how we obey. Okay, so the first benefit of the new covenant is new nature. Second benefit of the new covenant is knowing God. It's the same verse, right? Verse 10 again. I will be their God and they will be my people. God is our God. But here's the, here's the, the kicker. Why will we all know him? Because I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins I will no longer remember. How can he say that all of the people of God from top to bottom will know him? Because everybody who trusts is forgiven. Pastors are afraid to preach this. It's that simple. When you put your trust in Christ, you are forgiven. Sin is the great barrier to knowing God. God's able to forgive, right? Those that have been in the Pentateuch, sin, sinful humanity cannot survive in his presence, but he removes our sin. All who trust in Christ are able to know God. Did you know that you can be with Jesus on your worst day? I know, this gets a little edgy. Okay, what are you saying? You can encourage people to sin? No, I'm not. But I'm saying your worst day, you confess and you are forgiven and you're in fellowship with God no matter how you feel. This is so crucial. People want to try so hard to be a good Christian, but they're not secure in the fact that there's forgiveness in Christ And until you are secure in the forgiveness of Christ, you really cannot grow out of compulsive, addictive kinds of sins. Because the reason they're compulsive and addictive is they make you feel good. (laughs) Okay? They're not irrational, right? And so if, if the gospel then 
feels weighty and doesn't feel good to you, you are going to go back to your favorite sin because it makes you feel good. But when you know that you are truly forgiven and you don't have to be perfect, that there's forgiveness for real people who struggle, ironically, that is what leads to sanctification. So until you know you're forgiven, you make very little progress in your attempts to obey. And so this is really should have been the first point that I wanted to follow in order of Hebrews. So, you know, it's the, the, it is so powerful. Why don't we, why don't we draw near to God? Because we don't believe we're forgiven or apathy. So certainly you repent of apathy, but trust his forgiveness. Growth in obedience and holiness, sanctification that follows grasping the gospel. You know, I even remember kind of testing this, and I was a campus pastor down in Mankato, and realizing how profound the forgiveness was. So much so, you know, I remember one time a guy named Jeff Van Vondren came down and spoke at a church that I was associated with at the time, and, and uh, you know, he's just talking about grace, right? And I remember the pastor there saying, well, now, wait a minute. I mean, is that really all there is? I'm laughing my head. Yep, that's really all there is, right? We want to add something, you know, devotions, right? Well, do your devotions, but not because they make you right with God. Christ plus nothing saves. I trust him, and I am declared righteous, even with the things that you're ashamed of. Hallelujah. <laughs> Woo! Right? And when I get that, you know, uh, somebody was talking about sharing the good news. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was, I, I can't remember who it was. We had so much going on today. It was great. Well, one reason we don't share the good news is we don't know it. <laughs> when you know at your worst that you're forgiven, you got a message. You're forgiven. You believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. So then you can draw near to God. Second benefit of the new covenant is knowing God. One last benefit we'll look at, there's many, but we'll look at the one in the passage here. It's a pure conscience. Now, it's closely related to the other two. But uh, look, at, um, look at chapter 9. I just want us to guide us through. So in, in, in verses 8 and 9, um, he's talking about all the things they did in the old covenant. And he says in verse 8, in this way the Holy Spirit shows this that the way to the holiest place was not yet evident while the first tabernacle still had existence. He's saying they had to repeat these offerings every year. It kind of tells you that we're not there yet, right? Then verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time because gifts and offerings were not able to perfect the worshiper's conscience, right? They couldn't cleanse the worshiper's conscience. So they still had an awareness of sin, right? So then... Christ obtained an eternal redemption. Look at verse 11. Christ, after appearing as a high priest of the good things that have come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered once for all into the holy of holies, that he might obtain an eternal redemption. So what's the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying that the old covenant sacrifices were intended to point us to Christ, to get us ready to understand what was going on. So we'd recognize the, the power of this thing. And that it only had to happen once, of course, right? So then, 
two verses we'll look at, 13 and 14. He's making a comparison from the lesser to the greater. A fortiori. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, after being sprinkled on the unclean, result in purity of the flesh, how much more rather will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts, dead works, that we may serve the living God. Right? If they came out cleansed in the Old Testament ritual, he's saying the blood of Christ will cleanse the conscience from dead works. So let's just break that down a little bit. Dead works are sinful works that lead to death. It cleanses the conscience, conscience of this. And notice the last part of verse 14, so that we may serve. Now we get an insight here. And this is where we're going to end today. This is going to bring it all together, right? When you have a consciousness of sin and guilt, you can't really serve God in freedom. And so all of this that happens in Christ is designed to not only get you legally forgiven, not only give you power to change, but to actually address that part of the soul that could be trapped in guilt and regret for the rest of your life. Now, I know from my own life, I know ministering to people, this is an issue. So I want you to see the logic of the passage, all right? And then we'll look at one other scripture that echoes it. But um, okay, so dead works are works that deal death, right? Deeds that deal death, anything that leads away from eternal things, obvious sin, anything that deadens your conscience. He says the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience of these dead works. In other words, it doesn't just get you forgiven, it addresses that part of you that has moral awareness, so this is more than judicial forgiveness. This is the power of Christ to remove fixation and guilt and regret over past sin. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Me and James. Okay, cool. So why? Because the devil uses accusation and past history to drive you to destructive behavior. Like this is how compulsive sin works. Thoughts like, you'll never change, you're no good. So here's the thing, conscience. Your conscience is what we use to describe that moral awareness inside of you. Everybody has one. The problem is that even a Christian's conscience can be damaged. And it can be damaged in one of two ways. It can be damaged if you just get deadened and you don't care. That's bad. But it also can be wounded so that you become overly scrupulous. And everything, you've, oh my gosh, that's right. And you get more righteous than God. And I'm kind of joking. You know what I'm saying? It's like you are overly scrupulous about things that don't matter. That's a damaged conscience. So how does that get healed? Well, there's a long process, but we'll talk just about the, 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 the first step here. See, the, the conscience reflects, effect, uh, reflects our moral awareness, but when it's damaged, the devil will plague the conscience. You don't truly feel forgiven, or you'll do it again, or, or over-scrupulous about things that don't matter. So how does this heal? So at first, people will say, well, I've confessed my sins, but I still feel guilty. Okay, I believe you. Been there. So I'm going to make outline very simply a process here. I'm not saying this is the magic cure, but it is the process. All right? It's the process. It involves knowing 
believing and then feeling. Know the reality. The Bible says that your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So the first thing you must do is to fix that truth in your mind, even if part of you doesn't believe it, okay? But you know, this is the Bible, right? I'm going to fix this truth in my mind. Maybe you memorize the verse, meditate on it, make it a prayer, whatever you do. This is the truth that my conscience has been cleansed. And then you begin to take tentative steps of faith to say, I'm going to trust that this is really true. And you begin to grow in faith as you reflect on it. Now, why does that happen? Why do you grow in faith when you reflect on it? Because when you stick the truth of the word of God in your brain, when you don't quite believe it yet, (laughs) your mind is checking it out against the rest of the Bible and real life. And faith grows as you test the various things in the word of God, including this one, as you test them, And as you begin to see how it fits together and how it works, faith actually grows as you are listening in your soul to that word. It grows in your spirit because your mind is even unconsciously checking out, does this make sense? Does this make sense? And that's how the Christian worldview grows in your soul. You are thinking it through. You're saying, I tentatively, I'm trying trying to believe this, Lord. Help my unbelief, right? I'm trying to believe this. And when your soul reaches the place where it's like, yeah, that's right you don't feel guilty anymore. Here to testify. So it's a process of transformation, and it's really very holistic in the sense that you're reading, you know, not just that verse, right? You're reading the Bible. That's how your faith grows. You're checking against what you experience in life, and as you come to understand the Christian worldview better, the biblical worldview better, and as you're seeing, oh, gosh, this makes sense, you don't even know it, but your faith is growing. And if you're on, uh, let's say, the under 40 end of life, this might not be you, but for a lot of people it is, so I'm just going to say it, you might feel like, but I'm changing so slow. You're normal. Okay, you're normal. But as you are looking to the Word of God, and these little changes, they're micro changes, sometimes you don't even know they're there yet. And you're saying, I'm going to keep putting my faith in the Word of God Eventually, the feelings follow, not like magic, but because your soul is like, oh, that's right. And it actually makes sense. This is true. And so what happens is an integration of the thinking of the mind, the decision of the will, and the feelings of the soul integrate over time. Very important. And this is why the Bible says meditate on these things day and night, right? Reflect on them day and night because there's a transformation of soul that's going on and you're beginning to believe the word of God. And the more and more that you see things come out, the more your faith grows. It's not magic. It's just like, oh, this really is true. Oh my gosh, yeah, that worked out. Oh my gosh, now they're answered prayer. Oh my gosh. When I did what the Bible said, my relationships were reconciled. Oh my gosh. Right? And that faith grows. And so the process of the conscience then being relieved of this plague of guilt. And do I know what I'm talking about? For me, it was a two-year process a two-year process, because I was one of those um, vulnerable to scrupulosity, so everything was wrong. You know what I mean? Like, everything I did was wrong, I was sure. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so you want to really deal biblically with that. You're probably not as extreme as I am. I pray you're not. Hallelujah. Bless them. But, you know, but get the Word of God in your soul, and you'll begin to see the truth of the Word of God, and the soul comes into wholeness. 
This is how it heals. The third benefit, then, of the new covenant is a pure conscience. So as we head toward prayer this morning, we have a new and better covenant. If you believe in Jesus, you actually have a new nature. You may feel like it's not always the thing that's, you know, showing itself every day. But the Bible says he's giving you a new heart and a new spirit. There's a foundation there. And that you're forgiven so you really know God on your good days, but your bad days, too. He is your father on your bad days, too. Did you know that? Hallelujah. Did you know that? Okay, yeah. And then he does all of this so that your conscience is purified. Because, see, then you can serve out of joy. Then you can serve with your heart at peace. Then he can keep growing you and maturing you and sanctifying you because your heart is set free. I promised another verse earlier and I forgot to get to it, so I'm just going to show you. This is just a cool thing. So I was reflecting on um, Hebrews um, 9.14. Uh, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, amamon, unblemished. So Jesus offered himself unblemished to God. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. But now he has reconciled by the body of his flesh through death in order that he might present you holy, and that's right, amamos, blameless and without accusation before him. What's going on here? Jesus presented himself blameless in his sacrifice so that then he could present you and me blameless, holy, blameless, and without accusation before the Father. Is that good news? Man, stand with me. Lord, we ask that you would work in our souls, that every bruised and damaged conscience would experience the healing of the gospel this morning and in the weeks and months ahead. Pray for my brothers and sisters that as we stand, because of Christ, we stand holy and blameless and without accusation before you. I pray the truth of that would pour on bruised consciences, beat up and tired Christians. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take your word and bring healing and transformation. Hallelujah. So we're going to have prayer up here this morning, a little bit more so than usual. Um, if you wrestle with feeling forgiven, I would like you to come and get prayer. But there are maybe others that it's unrelated to that, but you just, you need to meet with God today. I'm just going to invite you to come up and get prayer. So I'm going to ask prayer folks that are ready to pray for others, come forward right now and just be ready. And we're going to give people an opportunity to really receive prayer. Because you know what? Jesus wants you free in joy.
peace, grace, just experiencing that. So um, you have any kind of prayer need at all, we're going to encourage you just to just come up right away, uh, right now while I'm praying. It could be something unrelated. Don't worry about it. Just get somebody to pray for you. And if there's too many people on prayer, grab others and we'll just have them pray. Okay, so here we go. Uh, so if you have a, a desire just to receive from the Lord in any way, I want you to come forward right now while I'm praying. Lord Jesus, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit where we need change, you've already given us a new nature. We pray in Jesus' name that we would respond, that we would trust you, that we would ask that your work of your Spirit would move in our souls. Father, will we have wrestled with drawing near, feeling forgiven, uh, accusation, I pray in Jesus' name that by the power of the blood of Christ that would be broken in Jesus' name. Every accusation, every paralyzing thought, we break that in Jesus' name. We pray the freedom of the gospel would release people this morning, that each one would be able to enter in to the glorious joy of the gospel. Father, we pray for brothers and sisters who are watching online or will watch this uh, video a little later today. Uh, or tomorrow, whatever, we pray in Jesus' name that the power of your Holy Spirit would enter their room right now and that you would minister where there's a bruised or battered conscience. We ask in Jesus' name that you would heal, that you would set us free. You'd set us free by the power of the forgiveness that you offer in Christ. So we bless this people, this fellowship of believers. We thank you for the power of your word and the power of your spirit, the power of community. We pray that you would bless and strengthen and release, O oh God. And now may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen.